from truck protests in Canada to churches and schools being shut down in Virginia, who would have ever predicted that a pandemic would lead to a worldwide struggle over our most basic liberties? What can we learn from this cultural moment about constitutional government? Welcome to Speak Up Virginia, equipping you to speak up on the life, family, and freedom issues that matter most to you. From the Family Foundation, I'm your host, Candy Cushman, and I'm joined today by our president, Victoria Cobb. All right, well, since we're on the topic of the pandemic today, I thought it'd be fun to start out with talking about this adorable board game that your daughter came up with around the whole experience. Yeah, she had the assignment of inventing something, and she decided to invent this board game, and it's called Escape the Pandemic. And really, that's the goal, is to kind of go through what would be normal life without these obstacles that COVID has created. And so the board has these places around the board, so um, school, your doctor's office, uh, church. It even has a ballot box. Because these are all things that have influenced whether we can have normal life. And so your object is to kind of hit all of those places and have what I call freedom minded cards. So, you know, you want to go to your doctor's office and you want to get a negative COVID test so that you can keep going. Uh, You know, you want to not have to um, go to the ballot box and have a mandate minded governor who then shuts everything down. And it literally will say something like, you know, you got a new governor and you're hearing it's going to lock down. So you got to go to the grocery store next and get your toilet paper. So it kind of like sends you to other locations based on which we all remember, like, oh, rush out, you know, stand in line for forever. Um, But the goal, the center of the board is normal life. And that's the goal. You're trying to get to the and it's this beautiful big sunshine. You know, it's trying to say like, this is happy life. If we could just get back to that. Well, you know, it had to have a ballot box coming out of your home. She would (laughs) be (laughs) We had a lot of fun brainstorming this as a family. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I just love how this kind of shows through a kid's mind what this experience has been like. Because you said there were freedom cards, like, you know, and if you got a negative test, it was kind of like going to prison. The best was, you know, if you get stuck in quarantine at home, in quarantine, you have to roll a six to get out. And so literally some people get right out and some people are (laughs) stuck there for forever. And so it's kind of fun to watch it play out because we do know how that actually played out sometimes. Which (laughs) was probably kind of her experience. Like if there was an exposure at her school, she could be stuck or like she's stuck there forever who knows how long in our family it was like if one person if we got quarantined and somebody had covid it was like don't let anyone else get it because the clock restarts and you're stuck with 14 more days if the next kid gets it at the end of the first so it really kind of was fun to watch it play out and apparently it was a big hit at school that's that's what i heard is that people were real i hope she got an a did she get an a (laughs) i don't think we've seen a grade yet but i'm sure she did just fine yeah it sounds very she put a lot of work into it i gave her a lot of credit she she spent the time to make it really a thoughtful cute thing well, what do you think was the biggest impact on your kids out of this whole pandemic thing? Or we're still going through it, I guess. But Yeah, I, I, I keep hearing virtual education was a nightmare for everyone. And I think that was our hardest thing. And we thankfully, because our kids are in a Christian school, they went back to normal as early as possible back in person. So they had the least amount of that. But these kids, I was talking to a mom that their kid had been home for a year and a half. I'm telling you, wow. great students went from being, you know, goal-minded and, and grade-oriented and good students to, like, who cares? We're online again, and I'm skipping classes, and I'm – it's – that's tragic. Yeah, and so much of that toll on our kids gets back to how the government is handling this, which gets into our topic for today. We're going to talk about constitutional government And what's been revealed about that with this whole worldwide experience with the pandemic, and I think it's very interesting, but just to start out this conversation, um, I want to point out that a key principle that we have at the Family Foundation is protecting 
constitutional government. And if you go to our website, familyfoundation.org, and click on the About section, you'll see several principles there having to do with life, marriage, and things like that. But you will also see constitutional government. So, Victoria, help us understand, in a nutshell, what does this principle mean, protecting constitutional government, and why do we care about it so much at the Family Foundation? If you go to our website, you're going to see the way it states it is the role and jurisdiction of government is clearly prescribed by our Constitution and consequently should be restrained from excessive involvement in the lives of citizens. So that's how we say it. And what we mean, and this is really important, you know, all of our principles are biblical principles first. And what we we frame this in the way of this is about the Constitution. But what's important for people to understand is the Constitution was written by worldview Christians. There were people who, even if they weren't Jesus followers, they had a biblical worldview. So they had this notion that came straight out of Scripture that the government is designed to do certain things, the family is designed to do other things, and the church is, an, is another sphere of influence. And they wrote the Constitution to restrain the government from entering those other spaces where the Bible says they don't belong. Yeah, because they understood a Judeo-Christian framework and what the benefits that that brings to society. And so that's where we got these whole principles of representative government, checks and balances, and that kind of a thing. And I've been thinking about this whole thing in the context of the pandemic and how we just tend to take that whole history and foundation for granted here in America. And one thing that's really brought that home is if you've been paying attention to the Freedom Convoy of Trekkers that started in Canada. And that whole thing has been fascinating to watch on a couple of different levels. First of all, if you know anything about the history of Canada, you know that Canadians are not really into the whole protest thing. That is not a thing there like it is here in America because they didn't start from a revolution. It's not really in their DNA, their cultural DNA like it is in ours. So the fact that you have had thousands of people engaged in this huge demonstration coming out of Canada, I think that makes a pretty big statement about the degree to which people are really starting to feel this effect of government overreach. Yeah, these truckers have been, I mean, what they're saying is we can't conduct business. And it's it's all focused on this idea that they have had vaccine mandates that are for people that are trying to drive back and forth across the border. There's a big route between Detroit and Canada. And they're saying, look, this is these these mandates keep getting tighter and harder and they're preventing business. And they've been parking their trucks and honking their horns to call worldwide attention to these onerous vaccine mandates, as well as this, you know, they have to prove prove their vaccines, you know, so they have to show their cards and all this stuff and restaurants and everything else. And they're they're basically trying to say enough is enough. And I got to say, at first, you know, when this happened in America, it was concerning to see that not enough people were doing things like this. That should have been our natural response, especially as Americans, to your point. Um, But in fact, we kind of at the beginning really rolled over and took whatever the government handed us. I think the longer it's transpired, the longer the pandemic has that we're seeing more and more uh, families revolt when they're being told their kid has to have a vaccine in college and so forth. Yeah, I I agree. It seemed like a lot of people were really just very submissive, especially when it it came to parents' personal medical decisions about their kids or the fact that basically our whole economy and even our churches are being shut down. Um, We didn't see as much pushback as as we thought, at least in the beginning. Um, But back to Canada, what really escalated the whole thing there was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's overreaction. He enacted basically a rarely used public emergency order 
that allowed him to essentially criminalize public assemblies and start freezing people's bank accounts. Now, that's the scary part because the Canadian government announced that they could now freeze people's bank accounts without even a court order. You know, and this is people who were thought to be involved in the demonstration or maybe just helping to fund the truckers. Um, let's hear from one of the participants of the convoy. I think it was one of the leaders express how emotional it was for them to have that clamp down. It's painful. Is this a democracy? Is this Canada? Can you hear democracy, democracy's death knell? It rings louder than the truckers' horns. The mainstream media has portrayed us as anti-government. I read that this morning on the mainstream media. While I've been pleading with the official Canadian government to talk and read our plan, because the only plan that that they have is violence. And the institution of a Chinese-style credit, social credit score system, the, the entire federal government, the entire, all of the members of parliament at the federal level should be ashamed of themselves. They have failed us badly. And one of the most disturbing parts of this whole thing was seeing how the government overreach spilled into the tech industry. So where you had GoFundMe announce that in response to the Canadian law enforcement's concerns, they were just going to take something like $10 million that had been raised for these truckers and arbitrarily distribute it. Uh, fortunately, after people started crying fraud, you know, that is really absurd that they could even think about doing that. They did finally back down on that and said that people would at least get refunded. But nevertheless, you can't just have a GoFundMe for something this important. Yeah, and it didn't stop there. The convoy supporters then turned from GoFundMe, of course, to cryptocurrency. And the Canadian government went after that, too. They found a way to shut those uh, platforms down or, or, you know, shut down people using that for donation. And I thought that was kind of disturbing, considering that you're constantly hearing about cryptocurrency being touted as a way to avoid that kind of government intrusion. The whole thing, honestly, reminds me of China and the socials. You know, they they literally kind of rank their citizens. And if you're not a good enough citizen, we're going to do things like this, which just the idea that that's in Canada now and America's paying attention. I, I think we do have to learn uh, several important lessons out of this, which is first, how easy it was for Canadians you know, for their prime minister to just kind of crack down and even shut down your financial wherewithal. Um, so that's that's alarming. But I think it does get back to, you know, they didn't have those firm roots that America has. They don't have some of the constitutional protections that we at least are supposed to have in our in our founding documents. Uh, you know, the checks and balances that we have in America. I mean, you saw President Biden, for instance, also trying to overreach and enforce a vaccine mandate on millions of people. But in the U.S., that thing goes to court and it's put up against our constitution. Yeah, the, the courts in Canada, apparently, they, they don't seem to be much of a check against overreaching government. And maybe that does get back to the fact that I don't, Canada doesn't really have a strong First Amendment like we do. They have smaller protections in their charter. But it, again, it's not backed up by their court system a whole lot. Um, so, you know, um, they seem to feel more accountable to Trudeau than the actual country's charter. So I, I think that does reveal what we take for granted here. Thanks for joining us for Speak Up Virginia, brought to you by the Family Foundation. If you're enjoying the show, help us encourage others to speak up by giving us a five-star review and sharing it with friends. Thanks for listening. You know, another thing that stands out about all this is the use of this so-called public emergency order. 
while we do have a lot of unique constitutional protections in the U.S. that we were talking about that we should be thankful for, even so, we saw very similar kind of attempts trying to usurp power in the name of public safety emergencies. I mean, President Biden, I think I saw that he's still trying to extend a COVID emergency state beyond March. And even though other blue states like New Jersey, they're finally reading the tea leaves and going the other direction, you know, he's still trying to do that. And then right here in Virginia, we don't have to look any further than former Governor Northam issuing emergency order after emergency order with basically no end in sight. Yeah, the end in sight was the election. But no, really, it's a key <laughs> it's a key point here that we had these public health emergencies being declared at both the federal and the state level that are basically being used as license to justify unprecedented government intrusion into private medical decisions and even our worship services. Um, and I guess there's another one that's happened recently. You know, the city of Richmond saw what an effective tool it was, right? So they, they watched and they went, huh, we should take advantage of this. And they actually declared a health emergency, but they did it that racism is a public health emergency. Now, I think we would all agree we have a major issue with racism and yes, it should be addressed, but they actually declared it so that they could force more equity training and controversial policies out on everybody because if it's an emergency, you gotta act. And so they're basically forcing everyone to live in this heightened state of alarm so you can do power grabs. Yeah, even if you think the power grabs are justified, it is disturbing that that is your mechanism because then those power grabs can be used again for other worse causes, as we have seen in history. But there has been some good news. Canadians aren't the only ones taking a stand right here in Virginia. We've seen some bold pastors in their churches standing up to the worst of these intrusions. And again, that's where having a good court system, or at least, you know, one that has that historical foundation of actually being a check. Um, that actually respects historically constitutional law that's coming into play. Because here in Virginia, you had this phenomenon of churches being forced to close or, you know, essentially close because they can hardly have any people in their doors, um, while liquor stores remained open as essential business. Um, in particular, you had this one church called Lighthouse Fellowship, whose pastor was actually served a legal summons on Palm Sunday because get this, he dared to have a worship service with maybe 16 people in a sanctuary built for over 200. And that was the kind of overreach happening here. Yeah. I mean, the good news here is, though, that charges were eventually dropped. And in fact, in the, at the Supreme Court level, a California church won its case after the state government forced it to be closed during COVID. And actually, I've seen cash actually flowing from the state back to these churches. They're actually having to pay a punishment in some mm. cases, which is fantastic. And, you know, we're trying in Virginia to address the whole thing in our law. We think it's really important. We we shouldn't have to. I, I jokingly tell interviews, you know, oh, it's nice that General Assembly is catching up to the First Amendment, you know, but we are trying to pass a right to essential worship that it never can get shut down. Yeah, I, I'm glad we still have some DNA that we're pushing back here in America, but it, it, it's just there's a whole lot as well, though, that we aren't as alarmed about that we should be. And, you know, before the pandemic happened, I think a lot of us were still kind of naive about how easy it is for the government to just discard these constitutional protections for their convenience, their their power grab and just ignore them, how quickly we can lose our freedoms, um, even right here in the U.S. So this whole thing was a timely wake up call, I think, to revisit the whole concept of constitutional government, why it's unique to the United States, why we need to fight for it. 
Yeah, I think people need to pay close attention in the middle of these kind of emergencies that they really need to watch what is government trying to take advantage of, not just the, the topic at hand, but really pay attention to the size and scope of government in your own life. And what, you know, in particular, I think we saw some of the scariest forms here, which is, you know, stepping into our private medical decisions, even with our kids. And that's where I think people are starting to kind of go, wait a second, this is this is a major problem. But we need to have folks paying attention. Even, you know, you even saw stories of teachers taping masks on students in classrooms. I mean, that level of absurdity has to be checked. I, I do think maybe we could be getting to a point where we're starting to see some balance come back, um, particularly with the new mask law in Virginia and seeing places, you know, like New York that are reducing some of their requirements. Um, New York recently fired hundreds of employees, though, including educators, firefighters, even police. I mean, you know, essential services, they actually did that because they wanted an opt out on vaccines. So we're not we're not all the way there yet. We have a long way to go. And I do think as one final lesson here, one takeaway, I think it's worth pointing out there are some scary warning signs for the future of what it looks like when government and big tech start joining forces. That that really was a light bulb that went off in my mind with this whole thing. Um, you know, when you see major tech companies like Facebook and others that seem to be taking their cues from government press conferences, you know, what's what Jensaki's saying, um, and then all of a sudden censorship follows on these platforms. So I, I think that's a huge warning flag. Yeah, I think people, you know, we don't want to be afraid of technology. We want to use it effectively for, you know, the gospel and every other good thing. But we do need to be aware that it is it is an open door for government to reach into our lives through our phones, banks, apps, you know, everything's digital now. Well, we've said a lot of scary stuff, Victoria, but but what do we do about it? How does the average person listening defend our constitutional government? Well, we need to elect candidates that understand this. So people really do need to know who are the people that are representing us and what is their view of the Constitution? Is it a living, breathing document you can change at any moment? Or were there really founding principles that came from Scripture that matter because government has to stay in a box for the family to thrive? And so we just really have to pay attention and we have to engage when these laws, when people are 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 having executive orders out of control or when we're trying to fix them with legislative efforts, people have to actually engage in that because that's how things are going to change. Yeah. You know, these aren't just words when people say nice, friendly sounding things about living document. No, living document actually plays out in really scary ways in real life. So that we, we got to stay awake to that. Well, it's that time again. Time for our Inconceivable Moments Award. This is where we're featuring examples of the absolute lunacy and craziness that happens when cultural leaders try to give guidance completely apart from biblical principles. And we're calling this the Liberals' Most Inconceivable Moments Award. Inconceivable! Just when you thought the gender identity pronoun craziness couldn't get any worse, it does. And today's topic comes from the United Kingdom, I think is a pretty timely warning of what's coming soon to our most liberal universities if it isn't already here. Yep, there had been several news reports that a British university, the University of Bristol to be specific, put out guidance for its staff on how to use pronouns at work. But what made this guidance unique was that apparently it included links to websites that encouraged staff to, among other things, understand emoji self-pronouns and something called xenic pronouns, like cat gender. All right, wait a minute, back up. Let's let's just start first with emoji self-pronoun. What, what is that? 
Yeah, so I was a little confused about that and actually tried to look into it. And I found this to be a very, very helpful New York Times guide on the subject. Um, Okay, so get ready for this. The New York Times used as an example a sentence with images of animal paw prints in place of the pronouns. So it says, did, and then there's this image of paw prints, bring, and then there's an image of paw prints, I guess, uh, in place of his or her lunch question mark it was the most ridiculous thing and don't even ask me to get into what happens if you try to pronounce pronouns that are an emoji Emoji pronoun pronoun. out loud i don't (laughs) know what that is well this is a real thing people in case you think we're making all this stuff up there is a new york times explainer on it as victoria said and i found one article also that explained emoji pronouns are quote used for a number of reasons such as One likes the way the emoji looks, liking the way they may sound in their head. Wow. Talk about divorcing the human reality, our language, from any connection to reality or human biology. That's insane. Yeah, I mean, when you think about that, you're you're building your whole identity for that day or your, your life identity around this is how I feel. I mean, if you think about that, that is so unhealthy and so you don't have any foundational um, thing to stand on there. You can see why people are a lot more unstable in society today when when you're kind of divorcing yourself from from, uh, something, a more sturdy foundation like that were created by God and love, you know, Jesus gave his life for us. Those are things that don't change. Um, So that scares me for today's youth. But speaking of animal paw prints and divorcing oneself from reality... Let's just go ahead and tackle this whole cat gender pronoun thing. Apparently, that is peaking, uh, picking up steam thanks to these online subcultures out there, which, as I said, I do think are targeting our youth, as well as universities like this one that kind of propagate this stuff by linking people to it. Yeah, this stuff is actually making its way into general discourse in the U.S. I mean, it's so much so that a school official in Michigan who actually had to respond to a rumor that went viral and put out a statement clarifying that they were not putting litter boxes out for students identifying as cats. Yes, that statement actually happened. I feel so sorry for that school official that had to put out a disclaimer, not putting litter boxes in the bathrooms. But on a serious note, Victoria, what do you think this says about a culture about where it's headed from a spiritual, just even a a healthy identity, personal wholeness point of view. Well, we have officially crossed into the, we are rejecting 100% of what God designed us to be. We are at the point where we just make up what we are and we call it what we want to. And it is completely outside of what God's plan was for us. And it's super sad. It's super sad for these kids who enter the world of chaos and confusion and are trying to navigate because they haven't been told, no, you're beautifully and wonderfully made as a male or as a female. And just the sadness that You don't have even the most basic foundation for your life. We are trying to create ourselves over in our own image. And I like what you said. Sadly, our own image is nowhere near the huge blessing and richness of the image God created for us. That's what's sad about it. Well, it looks like this university did get so much criticism that they did actually remove these links from its guidance. But I think we're going to still have to give this week's Inconceivable Award to the University of Bristol for giving us a disturbing trip down the pronoun rabbit hole. Let's just hope it doesn't turn into rabbit emoji genders. Thanks for joining us for this week's Speak Up Virginia, brought to you by the Family Foundation. Visit us at familyfoundation.org. That's familyfoundation.org. See you next time. 
And don't forget, we are stronger when we speak together.